Hi, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. As an executive coach and leadership strategist for over 20 years, I've also wanted to share the amazing insights and stories from my clients and other amazing people I know. Every episode, you will hear inspiring stories, insider tips, and practical ideas you can use during these unprecedented times. I'd also love your help spreading the word about this podcast. Tell someone you know about this episode or post about it on social media. I'd be grateful. As the managing partner of a prominent architecture and design firm in New York City, my guest today talks about the unexpected impact of design. When he started out as an architecture student, he imagined drawing houses. His vision of what architecture and design can do has radically evolved since. He sees design as having the potential to impact almost every area of our lives, our businesses, organizations, our communities, cities, the environment, public policy, how do we address racism? I'm telling you, the list goes on. And the decisions he makes are always taken into consideration, the context around the anticipated impact. Take a listen. Every decision you make has to be seen in the context that it exists. It needs to be thought of in a broader scale and its place in the world. How does that all tie into what we do as a firm? Planning issues and addressing zoning and the terrible things that systemic racism that's embedded in planning that's been done in this country, redlining. Oh my God. And you start to drill down into all of this stuff because it's all related. You look at the health issues that are hitting the minority population more than any because of their lack of access. It's amazingly challenging, but I'm really starting to work at understanding the interrelationship of all of it. Guy Geyer is the managing partner of FX Collaborative and is responsible for the strategic direction of the firm and its operations. As an architect and senior leader for over 40 years, his primary focus has been having a strategic impact within a larger mission. Guy Geyer, thank you so much for being on my show. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. It's interesting because we've actually known each other for a couple of years now. Elliot Felix, who was a guest on the show, initially introduced us, but I was checking out your LinkedIn profile and we have a lot of connections in common from my previous life working at Lendlease, which is a construction management company, to a bunch of clients that I currently work with. I'm looking forward to hearing some personal leadership stories and maybe even some insights from working with leaders over your career. Thanks, Winnie. It's great to be here, and I appreciate being invited. Before we get into some of your personal stories, tell us a little bit about FX Collaborative and what makes your architecture firm unique, and how does it stand out in the market? Well, the firm is uh, about 150 people. We're located in New York, currently in Manhattan, but soon to move to Brooklyn which will be a big momentous change for us. But we looked at that because the way that real estate pricing in New York was going, it's probably a little bit different now due to the pandemic, but we just felt like we needed to look at an alternative. And we were designing a building for a client of ours in Brooklyn that the more we talked with them about who their ideal tenant would be, the more it began sounding a lot like us. <laughs> and Suddenly, we came to the realization together, maybe that does make sense. And I assume you designed that space. 
Oh, yes, yes. We were our own worst client, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of cooks in the kitchen. But when you take a step back and look at it, it went pretty well. We'll be getting lead platinum status, very highly sustainable rating for the project because that's what we do. The firm, to get back to what we're all about, we were founded in 1978. We've gone through a couple name changes as partners, but now as FX Collaborative, we've continued the legacy of the firm and our commitment to sustainable design and high performance buildings. One of the earliest examples of which goes back into the 90s before the U.S. Green Building Council was in existence, was Four Times Square, which was often referred to as the Condé Nast building. But we did that with the Durst organization, who were at that time and continue to be one of the leading developers in the green movement. And they really gave us a lot of rope at the time to try new things and to develop a very green high-rise, really the first green high-rise in the country. So we've continued that legacy in all of our projects, whether it's office buildings, residential buildings, work for colleges and universities, or institutions of various kinds like museums and performing arts centers, and also our interiors work. We've completed a number of interiors projects that are lead platinum or very high performance interiors. That in and of itself is a big struggle because you're often going into buildings that have systems that were not designed to support that kind of space. We find ways to kind of milk everything we can out of the base building to get us to that level. And it's very rewarding to do that, but it's a real commitment that the firm has had for many years. It sounds like you guys have been pioneering in the sustainability space as it comes to design and architecture. Well, we have been very early on. The founding partners were very committed to green architecture, green design. It's part of our basic DNA now that we think about every project. It's always a challenge because not every client is totally on board at the beginning. So you have a lot of convincing to do in many cases for them to understand there's both a short-term and long-term benefit to designing sustainably. We have found that once you can put together a reasonable argument and show them what that return on investment is, either on the bottom line in terms of dollars, but also in terms of the kind of tenants they're going to attract or the kind of employees or users of the building and what they'll get out of the building being green. It's usually an argument that we can win or at least get a long way down the road with. And of course, over the years, the industry has changed a lot. I'd say back in the early days, we were the lone voice crying in the wilderness. But as time has gone by, the industry in general, architects, engineers, builders, clients, everybody have gotten on board. I wouldn't discount it and say it's table stakes now because everybody's doing it. But at the same time, the expectations are being set at a higher and higher level all the time. And of course, the general awareness in the world of climate change and the impact that our decisions about how we design buildings and everything that we do has become much more in the front of everyone's consciousness. So it's not like you have to convince people by asking the question, well, you do know about climate change, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) They know about that. Now the commitment is really to demonstrate what the solutions are to address it and how most effectively solve that problem. One thing, though, that I kind of want to 
point out, which is really important, is many times we think whatever the client wants, we'll give them. And FX Collaborative maintaining that legacy of sustainability and how that's emerged. It sounds like you've butted up against that. You've had to do some convincing with your clients, not for the benefit of just maybe for the environment, but also for them and being able to connect the dots for your clients that this is going to be better on so many levels. That's an important leadership skill. And that's having a lot of foresight around what's going to be better for everybody and really advocating for that, even when it wasn't so well-known or popular or the thing to do. Architects are always walking a fine line when working with our clients and between expertise and arrogance. (laughs) 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 Telling our clients what they should be doing is always a challenge. It isn't about just sustainability. It's about many issues, right? Because much of what we do is not black and white. We're architects, not engineers. Engineers tend to see things much more quantitatively. It's either this or it's that, and this is the right answer and that's not. Where architects, it's a very subjective profession in many ways. Building an argument in supporting something is really the key to convince a client. But even at that, you often get pushback. It's a balancing act all the time between not wanting your client to think that you're being arrogant and shoving something down their throat because you know better, as opposed to making a cogent argument in favor of something and bringing them along uh, with you. And this happens all the time. And it's one of the things I kind of find exciting and interesting about being an architect, right? Because you do have to convince people. Could you say a little bit more, like, why do you find that element exciting, needing to persuade or convince? It's kind of baked into architects from the beginning when you go to school and you have to present your projects in front of faculty or a jury that can often be very critical. You develop a thick skin and you build techniques and approaches that work for you in terms of how you counter those arguments. I was never on a debate club, but I maybe should have been because that kind of collaborative talk with your client to explore ideas and go back and forth. And initially, even with your own team, it starts really in the office with exploring alternatives to a problem and finding a solution that you think works. But there's never one single best answer. Usually there's usually a a number that you explore, and then you come to some agreement amongst yourselves as to what of those you might present to your client. And we like to present alternatives to our client. We don't pretend to always say that this is the answer and you're either going to do it this way or not at all. But getting to those alternatives to present means that we're exploring even more within our own teams to narrow it down. And That kind of give and take and critical evaluation is something I really enjoy. This kind of debate about projects also creates a more bulletproof solution because you've already, within your team, within the firm, you've already raised those questions, had those discussions. In some ways, this is sort of built into the culture of FX Collaborative, this way of thinking internally both to bulletproof the design, as you say, but also to prepare for the conversations that you'll have with clients or or other people that's sort of in the culture. Yeah, definitely. It gives people 
the opportunity to talk about projects and work that we're doing that are not at all involved in the project on a regular basis. So the, the team presents the project on a Zoom call and has usually about 20 minutes or so to present the project. And then the rest of the session, it's open mic night. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who wants to say something can say something, either critical or supportive or questioning or whatever it might be. And again, those discussions and debates are very useful, both to the project team, but for the culture of the firm to have a real vibrant dialogue about design and the work that we're doing. Yeah. And I would imagine that that translates really well when you're talking to clients because they're now prepared for having those kinds of conversations and not just the thick skin part of it, but the expecting there to be criticism and really waiting to hear that. And then having a conversation that's, I would imagine, pretty productive with the client around, tell me more, or let's go back to your initial vision, those kinds of things, which would help in your client relationship, nevertheless, with the end product. Yeah, definitely. And we like our clients to be involved in those discussions. We like those kind of iterative opportunities to involve the client. We really enjoy having the conversation with the client and including them in the process of discovery because it's their building. It's not our building. We certainly take a lot of ownership and pride for what we do, but once the keys are handed over, it's their building and they've got to be happy with it and they've got to use it. Being part of that process is incredibly important for them. Yeah. You want your clients to be happy, really happy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, because most of our work comes from them. So Guy, you have had a really great career and you have been involved in lots of other organizations that support architecture and innovation around architecture. There's probably a lot of stories that you could tell, <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. But what's a story that stands out to you when you think about really being challenged as a leader? What are some stories that would be helpful for other people to hear in terms of a challenge that you faced? It's both a personal and professional challenge that I faced, and it was spurred for better or worse, by the 9-11 disaster. I had been with a firm for many years and opened their New York office. That was in the early 90s when we opened that office. And there were many things that were happening that I was not happy with. And I had been contemplating making a change. And then 9-11 happened. And unfortunately, our office had a front row seat, if you will, we had a clear view of the World Trade Center from our conference room. It shook me to the core. Of course, my situation, I was so fortunate to not be downtown and all that. So my experiences can't compare with others and the loss that others faced. But nonetheless, it was like a slap in the face to me to say, okay, <laughs> life is short, dude. Right. <laughs> you, you can't keep doing this if you're not happy. And so I made a change and joined another firm and enjoyed a number of good years with them. In the late 2000s, we decided to open an office in Dubai, which seemed like a great idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and it actually did in many ways lead to us getting some opportunities to do some pretty progressive work that we were able to add to our portfolio and use in work that we were chasing domestically and in other places around the world. But Dubai itself was a very challenging environment. 
environment. They used to have an annual trade show convention. We had decided to put a little booth into this exhibit. I was manning the booth during the day, and I went back to my hotel room that night and turned CNN on to discover that the stock market had tanked. This was October of 2008. So I was like, oh no, this is terrible. This is the beginning of the end. And sure enough, things started to unravel in the economies around the world. And we ended up pulling up stakes and closing the office there. What decisions were difficult that you had to make? I think the toughest decisions that I have to make revolve around personnel decisions, whether it's having to do a layoff, which we did have to do a small layoff this past year due to the pandemic and the reduced amount of work that the firm had, or a decision around an individual who isn't performing up to their expectations. And I think those, for different reasons, they are the most difficult leadership challenges because they involve somebody else's life. <laughs> and I never take those decisions lightly. It takes a long time to come to terms with having to do those things. I think those are the toughest things that I have ever dealt with. Being a leader during 9-11, the Great Recession, and now the pandemic, <laughs> I'm curious if you have noticed any themes? Have you noticed your leadership maybe approach or philosophy evolve? The one thing I think that I've come to realize is that most of these things are not of our own doing. I realize that there are things that are totally out of our control that force us to make decisions that we have to deal with them and we can feel badly about having to make them. But the guilt isn't there like it was. But I think this past year is different. The scope of the pandemic and the numbers of lives that have been affected is without parallel. And the confluence of issues that have all layered over themselves and are interconnected, whether it's social justice in the wake of the George Floyd killing and others, climate change, the pandemic itself and the health impact of the country, the election season, it seemed everything just layered over it themselves. And they were all connected to each other in a weird way because we were all disconnected from each other physically. There was, at least for the firm and also my circle of friends and family, there was a kind of coming together around these things that was pretty remarkable. As a firm, we've always been very connected to social causes and we have a number of employee resource groups, whether it's our FX Women group or FX1, which is our LGBTQ group, or FX Mosaic, which is our diversity group, and other special interest groups like Team Green for Sustainability. What I think has been interesting is that all of these groups, which are organized from the bottom up, what's happened is that they've come together and connected themselves too around a lot of these issues. And so as a firm, I think we've really culturally grown quite a lot because there's these mutual problems to solve as well as mutual shared issues and shared solutions around some of this that we're trying to address. So whether it's diversity in our own office, which certainly as a profession, architecture has a long way to go and we're working hard at it. 
or diversity outside the office, working with colleges and universities with architecture programs and trying to support programs at those schools that are diverse or bring in a diverse student body. How does that all tie into what we do as a firm? Planning issues and addressing zoning and the terrible things, the systemic racism that's embedded in planning that's been done in this country, redlining and Oh, my God. And you'd start to drill down into all of this stuff because it's all related. You look at the health issues that are hitting the minority population more than any because of their lack of access. It's amazingly challenging, but really starting to work at understanding the interrelationship of all of it. It's interesting to hear you talk about architecture and design's role in some of these issues. It's exciting to think that you have the ability to influence some of those. Yeah, trying to get other people involved because architecture can't solve it all by ourselves, but public policy, trying to influence politicians, regulatory authorities, whether it's at a national level, I've been very involved over the years with AIA, American Institute of Architects, and also the IIDA, which is the International Interior Design Association. One thing we recently did with IIDA, and it was like one of those slap in the face moments, like, yeah, what are we doing? So I'm chair of the College of Fellows for the IIDA. And every year we put out an announcement that asks for nominations for new fellows to be considered for the year. One of the requirements was that you had to get five recommendation letters, two of which had to be from fellows of the IIDA. And we got a letter from a member who wanted to apply, but felt that the requirement for getting letters of support from so many fellows reduced the access to being a fellow, because if you lived in certain parts of the country, you may not know other fellows. It was limiting for a number of reasons and was not an equitable situation. So we called quick meeting and made a change and implemented the change and sent out a notice and announced a delay in the deadline because we wanted people who may have considered but were not able to get the right kind of recommendation letters that they could do that. We're looking forward now to receiving a much more, I hope, diverse body of nominees to be considered for fellowship that was exciting to be able to implement a change like that quickly. Zooming out maybe a bit. I'm curious, as you look back on your life and your career, are there some things that happened? Maybe it was a story. Maybe it was the way you grew up. Are there things that you go back to? I think I'd go back to my days in architecture school. And it really has to do for me with building a level of confidence in myself. When I went to architecture school, I did not have any clue what I was getting myself into. <laughs> <laughs> That's number one. So when I arrived there and I suddenly started being exposed to architecture, I thought architects designed houses. It was very simple. And I started to be exposed to architectural history and theory and philosophical thinking about architecture. And I was like, oh, my God, I thought you just sat down and drew stuff. I, <laughs> I, I had no idea that this is what I was going to get into. It took me really a couple years to really understand what I had gotten myself into. Fortunately, I survived those couple of years. And then we have design studios. So a group of students, usually 10 or 12 students, are assigned to a faculty member who is your studio leader and 
he or she assigns you project assignments and you go through a process. One professor of mine in particular, my studio leader, who really forced me to think by drawing and solving problems through using drawing as the technique for exploration. Oh, that's cool. And what was important about that is that I was not a confident person using the pencil. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Many of my classmates were much more talented at sketching and drawing than I was. And so it created, for me, mind block in many ways, because I was never really comfortable using drawing as a problem-solving technique. And this one professor just shook me out of that stupor and said, it doesn't matter what it looks like. What matters is that you're continually exploring stuff and just go for it. Draw. He used to walk by my desk and just lean over my shoulder and just say, draw. draw. <laughs> He'd see me staring at my drawing table, not doing anything. And he said, just keep drawing. And that was a big change for me because it built more confidence in my ability to solve problems. And so it just changed my attitude and my approach, but it also gave me confidence that I didn't have to be like everybody else. I could be a little, <laughs> a little different and I could still find my way and do great work. Those were really early life-changing events for me. Yeah. It's interesting because there's the confidence underlying issue, but it's almost like you were thinking too much about what was on the paper and how it looked and compared to other people. But then your thinking was getting in the way. But at the same time, they were trying to have you look at it in a different way, which is your thinking by drawing. And so there was stop thinking, but think more or something. Yeah, I think it became much more of a looser thought process, less structured thought process that I got to be comfortable with. Sometimes now maybe I should be more structured in my thought process. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be teamed with people who can do the deep dive and do the drilling down. I like to come up with a big concept and work with a team of people that can drill down and do the specific analysis, come back with an evaluation that we can then review and decide what we're going to do. That's just how my decision-making process has evolved over the years. I'm sure it drives some people crazy because they think I should be more detail-oriented. I was listening to your TEDx talk at Times Square. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great. And really what struck me about that talk was how practically and symbolically architecture reflects the aspirations of your clients. You were giving the example, you were in the New York Times building, which FX Collaborative designed. And you said the New York Times wanted their new building designed to reflect the openness of the press which I thought was really cool. But I'm curious, how has that inspired your leadership in terms of thinking about your clients and how they include those aspirations in their buildings? I don't know if there's any link there, but I was just curious how those kinds of conversations have influenced your own leadership. Maybe the one parallel I can think of is to think about context. Every decision needs to be made in its own context. So when we design buildings, we think about what the context is for that project, not only in terms of its aesthetic context, like are we in a historic district or there are aspects of neighboring buildings that we should be pulling from for inspiration. That's really more of a design context. 
What I like is thinking about things using context in a broader sense. So context includes the building solar orientation. What sustainable aspects can we take advantage of simply by using some passive techniques? What's the social context? What neighborhood are we in? Who are the people, the users that are going to be using this building? What is the impact of the building on the city from a broader planning perspective? I think it was Aaron who talked about designing the chair and the room, the room in the house, the house in the neighborhood, the neighborhood in the city. So you have to think of this continuous range of scales. That is interesting to me relative to architecture, but I think it also is interesting in relationship to decision-making, that every decision you make has to be seen in the context that it exists. I don't think any decision can be looked at at one scale. It needs to be thought of in a broader scale and its place in the world. Yeah, I like that a lot. You have to think of everything you do as having an impact and making a decision one way or the other, you might think is only affecting you, but it affects a lot of people. And so everything you do, be thinking that you're going to leave the world in a better place than you found it. Yeah, because you think about buildings that have been around for a really long time and the impact it's had on the community and how it's evolved and that whole idea of legacy and how your decisions and what you decide to do or not do impact that legacy, not only your own legacy, but how it impacts other people. Yeah. It's pretty powerful. It is powerful and it's a little... (laughs) scary too that, <laughs> right. that things we do, buildings that we design, environments that we create are going to impact people for potentially hundreds of years. That's why I think getting back to the sustainability issues, the critical nature of what we're doing in terms of designing buildings to reduce their environmental impact and make them contribute to a positive outcome instead of working against it, I think is very important. We've just begun doing a deeper dive now into workplace interiors and the fit out of space in in buildings and the massive waste that goes into this when you think on average 10-year leases in an office building, right? And so everything that was built 10 years ago is going to get ripped out and sent to either the landfill or, if we're lucky, a recycling center. Well, what if we didn't have to do that? (laughs) Yeah. What if we could reuse those spaces for the next tenant and not have to tear it out. And of course, everybody wants their space to be branded to their own use and particular to their, but is there some universal planning philosophy that could impact that in a positive way so we wouldn't have that kind of waste? Or is there some construction methodology where those spaces could be reused more effectively? We've talked about it a long time, and some furniture is recycled and reused and things like that, but not to the level that it could be. So what can we do to to maximize that? Which you'd probably say is outside of your scope. I don't think it is outside of our scope. I think it's very much inside our scope Okay. to try to influence those kinds of changes. We work with furniture manufacturers. We work with contractors. We work with landlords. They all have related and symbiotic relationships with each other, and I think that we can influence each of those pieces of the puzzle in a positive way. And because you have those relationships, that makes a huge difference too, 
right? Because you're having conversations with people. It's not a theory. It's not a policy, right? You're talking to real people about some of these things and back to influencing skills, <laughs> helping them see things beyond the short term, look at the long term. Exactly. If someone's listening, they're early in their career, what advice do you have? What advice would you have given your 25-year-old self? <laughs> <laughs> I think that I would say to be as flexible and as open to new ideas as possible, to not restrict your thinking. What you think you might be doing five or 10 years from now is not necessarily what you're going to be doing five to 10 years from now, even if you're in the same profession, and that you ought to be open to as much influence and alternative kind of thinking as possible. I probably had more of a linear career than most in that the first firm I was with, I was with for almost 20 years or so. Thinking back on that, while the opportunity there was great because every five to seven years, it seemed like they offered me something new to do, <laughs> <laughs> which was good. But I think that that's what you need. You can't continue down this singular path with an absolute idea of what you're going to be doing 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. I think that's too stifling and we ought to be open for more exploration of alternatives. You never know what it's going to, where it's going to lead you, but that's kind of an exciting life path. I really enjoyed talking to you and I feel like we covered a lot. <laughs> this <Yeah>. was good. <laughs> it was great, Winnie. I really appreciate having the opportunity to talk with you too. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winita Silva. Could you take a few minutes to provide a rating or write a comment on Apple Podcasts? Also, reach out to me at www.winniedasilva.com to learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness. If you have your own story of overcoming a leadership challenge you'd like to share, please email me at winnie at winifred.org. Maybe I'll even have you on my show. Thanks so much. <laughs>